0: The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, Guiding Teacher at Common Ground. Good morning, everyone. I'm teaching today from the Forest Refuge, which is up the hill from IMS. It's part of the Insight Meditation Society, a place where people do long-term practice, and I'm here teaching for a month with Caroline Jones, the resident teacher up at the Forest Refuge, but still really happy to be joining in for the Sunday morning weekly practice group and assuming that there are some of you in person at our city center in Minneapolis. I see a few people from the retreat center, Common Grounds Retreat Center in western Wisconsin, and then of course many others. And sorry about the uh, problem with the link not being up on the calendar. We'll get that f- fixed for the weeks ahead. And let's uh, make this resolve in our mind for the next few weeks to just get a sense of the possibility of contentment, and it's it's surprisingly empowering. You know when we think that. I need conditions to be a certain way in order to be happy, it's so disempowering. We're basically saying, I'm helpless unless the conditions are the way I think they need to be until my friend or my partner treats me the way I think they should treat me or until the weather is the way I think the weather should be, until my body feels the way I think my body should feel. I'm going to have to be discontent and unhappy and ill at ease. And uh, it's not, you know, nobody is saying that I mean, those external conditions don't matter. Clearly, external conditions affect us. There are experiences that are more and less pleasant, there are experiences that can be intensely unpleasant. But the question we want to explore today, I'll explore in the talk, but then we can all explore in the next week or two directly through observation, through being interested, and right now resolving to be interested, is there a contentment that is always available? I mean, we kind of know this, but more from the other end, because we've caught ourselves cultivating discontentment even when the conditions of our lives are really nice this is can be uh, people who have a long time Dharma practice this will bring out a good laugh when we have really nice situation we're comfortable people love us we're in a nice setting and we catch the mind cultivating discontentment yeah but if only you know and then we the, all those add-ons that we think would make the moment even better oh if only this if only that and we can whip up a lot of dissatisfaction in the mind even when the conditions are nice like when uh, we're on vacation or whatever it might be finally doing what we wanted to do for a long time and what what happens is we cultivate a lot of discontentment because there's somebody near us who's really noisy, or even a little noisy, or there's one mosquito, or I have a little heartburn. And it's interesting, you know, the way our attentional habits can work if our mind isn't well-trained, is our mind will become riveted on the one irritant and will ignore the 99, you know, relatively pleasant conditions that are here and now, and it will notice the one thing. And it won't be satisfied, it won't be happy or content until that one thing. And even if we do it, then get rid of that mosquito or fix the ouch in the body, interestingly, another one thing comes to mind. (laughs) Because the habit of the mind is to practice discontentment We're kind of identified and in a funny way comfortable being discontent, being uneasy, being ill at ease. And we're not that familiar with the experience of being content and at ease. (laughs) And we think, with a lot of arrogant confidence, we think the problem is the world isn't the way it should be. There's no way I can be at ease because of the way the world is. And that thought is very compelling. And the question is, you know, just even with this initial part of the talk, are we willing to get interested? In one place, you know, just start noticing where contentment comes up naturally. You've been on your feet for a long time and you sit down and there's a few moments of contentment. Oh, this feels nice. Because the pleasant sensations can interrupt the habits we have of being ill at ease, right? So one place to begin your exploration, to increase your comprehension of the experience of contentment, is just be prepared when you get something you want. When you sit down when you wanted to sit down, or when you go into a warm room when you've been cold, or go into a cool room when you've been hot, or drink water when you've been thirsty. And there's this particular Dharma move where we notice, in this case, the contentment that's arising because the conditions are pleasant, but then we're noticing contentment we're imagining the contentment not dependent on the pleasure. So that's one way to get to know contentment, is we experience it because the conditions are temporarily the way we like them. And then we, in a sense, we're teasing apart the cause for the contentment from the experience of contentment itself. We're noticing, oh... This is what contentment feels like, looks like, in the body, heart, and mind. Okay, let me get familiar with this way of being so it's not tied to the fact that I'm eating food and I've been hungry so I feel that contentment of, you know, sating my hunger. No, this is that heart that doesn't need conditions to be different the heart that doesn't have any wants. And, and we, we can even track, like as you're getting interested in those moments where you do feel comfortable and getting what you want, just notice how the mind itself interrupts it eventually and starts wanting something else, starts paying attention to what is a cause for dissatisfaction Instead of what's a cause for satisfaction. And I know it's not, uh, it isn't something we should believe in, but we definitely want to keep our mind open that we live very much in a constructed world. Like how I pay attention, what I pay attention to really matters. So just find some places in your life. Well, you can just explore this. You know, generally it's easier in the, when the moments aren't too complicated. So maybe when you're by yourself, you're taking a walk. Let's say you're, you know, doing a walk, you do a lot somewhere in your neighborhood. And you can just explore, okay, now for the next three minutes, I'm going to do my best to pay attention to sights and sounds and sensations that are pleasing, or at least ordinary, not irritating, not unpleasant. And I'm gonna just see if I can uncover some contentment, some ease of heart, that ease of well-being, the heart not agitated, simply by choosing to pay attention to certain aspects here in the present moment and not, strategically, not pay attention to other aspects in the present moment. You know, for most of us, there is, any at any point in our day, we could bring to mind our, our to-do list, or we could bring to mind some situation in the world that's really irritating, really upsetting. And it's not like we have to be oblivious to those things but it's not always appropriate to bring them to mind. And if we're not that good at accessing the experience of contentment, I strongly suggest we get better at accessing the experience of contentment and being at ease because it really changes how we operate in the world. If all our heart experiences is being ill at ease and upset and irritated and overwhelmed, we're not going to be good for taking care of ourselves and we're not going to be good for taking care of others. Now, I'm not saying that it's always easy and I'm not saying that it's fair in the sense that some people's circumstances might be, have, you know, just naturally, unavoidably have more difficult experience going on. And so it won't be so easy for you. To access the experience of being content and at ease. But we can all, whatever our conditions are, whether we're somebody struggling with a serious medical condition or a lot of difficulty in our home life with our relationships at home or whatever it might be financial insecurity, being taken advantage of, being mistreated in life. It still matters what we pay attention to, and there are moments when we can pay attention to experiences that are neutral and even relatively pleasant, and it will have an effect on the mind. Now, one of the things we've been learning in our uh, 16 instructions we get from the Buddha and the... uh, Anapanasati Sutta, and I've been putting a document uh, in the chat, and for those of you who are in person, <clears throat> you can get it on the calendar for this event, the Sunday morning weekly practice group. There's a Google Doc, and I put articles. And today I put a link to Venable Analio, this German wonderful German monk, Bhikkhu Analio, Bhikkhu just means Buddhist monk. <clears throat> Um, he has a book, Mindfulness, uh, Mindfulness of Breathing, a, pra- a practice guide and translations. It looks like this if you get a paper copy, but I put the link in for the PDF. Uh, Venable Analio and uh, publisher Windhorse make it the PDF freely available. So I've linked to that PDF that you can put on your computer or your electronic reader, whatever you use to read digital content, and it's a, you know, normal-sized book. It's pretty thorough. He is not only a wonderful meditation teacher, but he's a pretty impressive academic. So part of the book will have a little bit of that um, academic vibe in the sense of uh, footnotes and giving some background, but it's really an impressive um, description of the 16 steps that we've been working through now for the last couple months and probably will continue until we finish sometime later this fall. We're kind of getting into the middle with the six steps, six out of 16, where the Buddha, as I mentioned in the guided meditation, is saying, Friends, I'm asking you to train yourself while you breathe in. See if you can keep in mind this ease of the heart. As you breathe out, see if you can keep in mind this ease of the heart. Of course, you're going to want to pay attention to other aspects of the present moment, but this is a training, right? I'm asking you to train yourself, see if you can just keep this in mind. Now, of course, there have been five steps before this, many steps that are setting us up, making it easier to discern and to keep in mind contentment in this ease of the heart, the sukha, sukha. This Indo-European word, sukha, from the Pali language is related to our sugar, (laughs) sweet, right? And it's a more relaxed version of what we talked about if you were here for the talks the last few weeks when I talked about joy, piti, this lightness of heart, this joyful interest. So let me just review the first six steps. And remember, we're learning it as a map, so we learn it in this linear way, but it's really a holistic map. So you might, in your own personal sitting practice, you might, from time to time, let's just say once a week, you might specifically, step by step, go through as many of the 16 steps as you're able to go through, and getting as clear as you can with one step, before going to the next. Not perfectly clear, because you'll never get to the next step, but just clear enough so that you can go to the next and go to the next. But a lot of the times when you're sitting, you might not ask the mind to go through it in that linear, systematic way, step one, step two, step three, or instruction one, instruction two. But we're learning it that way because it really it helps us understand the whole path. And one of the things, um, partly from my uh, having worked with uh, Venerable Analios teachings and really appreciating him as one of my teachers, um, and a point he makes so strongly is, and it's just not to do with the mindfulness of breathing instructions, it's really about the whole path. The path doesn't work unless we're sensing some trustworthy pleasure. Otherwise, we're just not going to continue, even if we're sort of really desperate for some fix in our life because we're experiencing a lot of difficulty. We might come to the practice, meditation practice, with some real devotion, but it probably won't last very long, our devotion, or loyalty to the practice, unless we're directly sensing some value from doing the practice. Not later, but there in the moment, after the sit, during the sit, and it's nourishing our life. In a way, you could talk about the whole spiritual path, this, what we call in Buddhism, this path of awakening, as learning to sense or recognize, and then learning to align with, and then eventually learning to use it as a guide, this refinement of inner pleasure. And I've been talking about this pleasure as being something that's more about what is not there in the heart than what is there. So like when I go after ice cream, for a while I've got it in my hand and I've got it in my mouth. But with spiritual pleasure, it's more about what the mind is abandoning. Oh, that feels good. I put that weight down. Oh, I've put a more subtle weight down. So we start, you know, being an ordinary, frantic human being. We can start by just sitting down. (laughs) It's like, okay, for 30 minutes, I'm just going to sit in a relaxed, comfortable way. And I've put down the idea of me being somebody who has to do something with my physical body. (laughs) So even on that basic level, let's say you know nothing about meditation except from what I've observed, people just sit there, right? That's the only instruction you've gotten. But even then, you could either turn that into a hell realm by paying attention to all the things you wanna do, but you can't, because you decided you're gonna sit for 30 minutes, or you could pay attention. It might be initially more subtle But you could pay attention to how nice it is to not have to get up and do anything for 30 minutes. Just to be here. Now that's a more subtle pleasure. The pleasure of not having to be the person to get up and do this, to get up and do that. Not even having to be the person who has to adjust my body. I could adjust my posture, but I don't have to because I'm practicing being content, being the one that doesn't have to move. And you know, with our first couple instructions where the Buddha's inviting us to establish mindfulness to the fore, that just to remember what it is to be present, then we're adding to the experience of just sitting in one place for the duration of our meditation period we're adding to it to this, like, okay, like to the degree we know what it is to be present, then we're abandoning the mind's dependence on distraction. Like, I'm not saying, I'm not even at the point where I'm saying I have to be with the the breath coming in, the breath going out. I'm just at the point where I'm saying, oh yeah, look at this. There is this present moment and it's being known, I could keep the present moment in mind, whatever it is that's here and now, I could keep it in mind, and therefore I would abandon, I would necessarily have to abandon distractedness, and I would learn what that feels like. What does it feel like to sustain present moment awareness? And this is what the Buddha means. This is actually before even the first instruction, that it's fine to consider it, the first instruction. He says, establish mindfulness to the fore. Recognize this capacity to be present. And we can do that right now. And we may not normally realize it, but it's really stressful to have to be distracted, to have to think about this and then think about that and then compare and then plan and then worry and then hope and then fear and then wonder about that thing over there and think about something from the past and speculate about something in the future. Because, you know, any present moment, because of the tendencies of the mind and the environment that we're in, it's like there are all these possible off-ramps for the mind, just sort of dangling there, things that the mind can obsess about, think about, worry about, plan about, pay attention to, in a way that the mind gets lost lost in its proliferation. There may be a moment where you see something, like I see my mug over here, my uh, thermos, and that might be for a moment, okay, seeing, but very quickly it's like, well, that's my thermos. And I find it really difficult to clean that thermos. And I'm wondering, at what point is it not clean? (laughs) And should I replace it because I can't clean it? You know, and all those sort of thoughts about it or is it a? used to be considered to me to be a cool thermos but now i'm wondering if it's too old to be cool <laughs> it's you know i need a new thermos maybe a different color this is a black thermos sort of buddhist being black simple right but maybe i need more color in my life and it's amazing like even something that simple seemingly simple the mind can just get lost and mental proliferation, just thinking about it. It's not that that kind of thinking is, you know, torturous for the body and mind, but we're missing the pleasure of non-distraction. And the thing is, because it's a subtle pleasure, we don't even realize what we're missing. It's like refined food. If all we eat are, you know, some intense potato chip or whatever. I'm not against potato chips. But it's like if we're just eating really kind of gross or dense foods that have really strong tastes, it's hard to appreciate something that's subtle. And then once we have a taste for something subtle, we start to lose the taste for something gross. And this is really one way to understand these 16 steps, is we're training our spiritual palate to appreciate more and more subtle pleasures. And these are pleasures that have to do with what the heart or mind has abandoned. The first being the mind abandons distraction and begins to taste the pleasure of non-distraction and then with the what's considered the first step where the first two steps where the buddha asking us to use the physicality of breathing in and out that ordinary process of in and out in and out breathing that we're doing all the time as long as we're alive maybe subtle maybe gross but it's happening and to just attend to that ordinary experience of breathing in and out as an exclusive object of awareness. So, as you can understand, then we're abandoning the diversity of our experience, because now we're telling the mind, we're asking the mind, honey, because it's gentle but persistent, honey, can you please just pay attention to the sensations of breathing in? wherever, however you feel that bodily, can you please pay attention to the sensations of breathing out, however they're being experienced now, in the present moment. And everything else, you don't have to push away, but it falls into the background. And I'm letting go of the need to attend, and I'm letting go of any dependence my mind has on knowing everything else, because I'm choosing just to know the physicality of this in-breath from the beginning to the end, this out-breath from the beginning to the end. So then we're learning that there's a pleasure of this exclusive, because it's what the mind is beginning to taste is the pleasure of simplicity, and it's a kind of seclusion. The mind is secluded from the diversity Of sense impingement. You know, there's so many different sounds and sights and thoughts and emotions and touches and smells and tastes impinging, like you can just think of the heart as this very, very sensitive organ to sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touches and mental activity. So very sensitive, organ, feeling responsible to everything that touches it, and having to have a thought about it and decide whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, whether I should push it away or hold on to it or ignore it because it's neutral. But with this next training, the first two instructions, where the Buddha is saying just be with the breath, and notice how the breath gets more refined, more subtle as you get more of this continuity with the secluded attention to just the breath, excluding everything else, because it's far into the background. And then there's a pleasure there. It's like that's what guides us onward to more refined pleasure. We go from the pleasure of non-distraction, which is, relatively speaking, gross, to the more refined pleasure of seclusion, simplicity. But this seclusion depends on an exclusive attention to one object, the breath coming in and going out, right? So the third step then is we relax that exclusive attention, we abandon the dependence on the exclusive meditation object and we allow the mind to become naturally more relaxed and receptive to the whole body. So that's a more refined pleasure. Now the seclusion isn't dependent on the meditation object of the breath, but the more general, inclusive awareness of the whole body. So that's that third instruction. One trains oneself while breathing in, experiencing the whole body. One trains oneself while breathing out, experiencing the whole body. Now I know I've been going through this, these opening instructions a number of times, so, but it's really good to develop this fluency and to see it as an increasing um, uh, intimacy With this healing pleasure spiritual pleasure that's all about abandoning distraction abandoning the mind's dependence on the diversity of the present moment experience abandoning the mind's dependence on an exclusive meditation object and then the fourth instruction then while we're breathing in breathing out the buddha asks us to train ourselves to notice the calming effect on the body, to notice that embodied well-being. Now, here what we're doing, this is more profound, actually, with this fourth instruction. We're abandoning the mind's obsession, the mind's dependence on paying attention to bodily problems, bodily pain, bodily irritants, the little thing going on in my neck, or the skin being a little cold, or the body being a little wiry and restless. And it just seems it's a deep instinct, right? <clears throat> Maybe, you know. I think it might even be an instinct, but it can be overcome. But to pay attention to what seems like a threat, even a very mild threat, like there's a mild discomfort, a mild restlessness, a mild being too cold or too cool or too hot, or whatever it might be. But instead, we're noticing the mind, the knowing mind, and it not having a problem with the body. So we're not looking at the sensations in the body to give me feedback about threats, And you could think about, we talk about this mostly in terms of sensation, the tactile sense, but really, in a sense, we're talking about all five of our bodily senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching. So as we're breathing in, the heart doesn't have a problem with that exposure of body. And as we're breathing out, we're noticing not having a problem. It doesn't mean that. We're not feeling pain or not seeing unpleasant sights or hearing unpleasant sounds. It just means, with this totality of awareness, we're practicing the mind, the knowing mind, being okay, being content, not having a problem with sense experience being what it is. And that brings up deepens, widens this embodied well-being, this bodily calm. And we need to learn how to keep it in mind. And it's, you know, part of what happens here with this first step is we have to trust the Buddha's instructions because we need that faith, that trust, is there as a counterweight to this strong mindedness, the strong-headedness that I'm not okay. This body, my bodily experience is not okay. I can't be okay with my physical experience right now. I can't be content with it. I have to be in that ordinary controlling mode, managing my physical experience. We don't want to put down that role of being the manager, constantly feeling the need to tweak it this way and that way and even if people were to observe us outwardly like when we're sitting they may think okay mark sitting pretty still but in very subtle ways we can be like trying to fix it trying to make energy move let me just align my spine a little bit or should i swallow should i blink should i you know it's just like uh always putting the sense of self in the driver's seat where the sense of self has to manage and it's always burdened by that need to manage so with this fourth step where the buddha is saying train yourself while you're breathing in to sense bodily calm bodily well-being the mind is at ease with the body The mind doesn't need the bodily experience to be different. So this is a healing, as I've often said. The knowing mind and the body, that relationship is beginning to heal. Because the mind is okay with the body. And the body reflects that acceptance, let's call it, with bodily well-being, bodily calm. Because the mind not being okay with the body disturbs the body. It's like being married to someone who's always judging us, always controlling us, always wanting us to be different. You know, it wouldn't be easy. <laughs> Sorry, Wynne. <laughs> and you know, we all have that relationship, you know, where we feel oppressed and it might be that we're oppressing ourselves or we feel oppressed by someone Else. But we, you know, in different ways, we have that judging, that critical, that domineering attitude. It operates, even if it operates just in terms of self hatred towards yourself, as opposed to externalizing it to someone else or to other conditions. But when we get, excuse me, when we get good enough with that fourth instruction, Breathing in, experiencing that bodily ease. Breathing out, experiencing bodily ease. The mind at ease with the body. The knowing mind, knowing the body, and not needing the body to be different than it is. Then there can be a deeper sense of the joy. And this is what I talked about last week. Breathing in, experiencing joy, the Buddha says to train ourselves, breathing in. This is that joyful interest where the mind that knows, the knowing mind, the sensitive heart, it's beginning to sense something that's rarely seen and felt, which is the experience, the activity of the body and the mind all happening on its own. It's just the continuation of trusting the body. Now it's just a more generalized trusting that everything can be as it is. And that is experience, that way of relating is experienced as a kind of lightness. So joyful interest might be a good translation of the word piti. Not so much the pleasantness of the piti, but that way of relating that is not controlling, not dominating, not afraid. And in that non-fear, in little ways initially, right, it won't always be obvious, but we just begin to feel the energies of the body and the mind freely moving, not fixed, like a kind of, sometimes just a fluttering, tingling, vibrating, Aliveness of body and mind, not fixed, not held, not tight. And the Buddha is saying it's really important to learn how to keep that joy, that joyful interest, that lightness of heart. It's really useful to keep it in mind. Not to clamp down, not to own or have, but to just let things move. Appreciating that things can move, that the moment, this moment, like this moment right now for all of us, this moment doesn't need us, doesn't need anybody to do anything. And that joy can really blossom. Let me just read a little bit from that book I mentioned at the beginning of the talk. With the momentum of the previous practices and based on the deep relaxation brought about by the preceding step of calming bodily activity, at the present juncture, joy can often arise quite spontaneously, at least in a subtle form. All that is required is to recognize the even rather delicate manifestations of joy. Such recognition fulfills the present step and at the same time tends to strengthen the joy that has arisen. So noticing joy is the cause for the deepening and widening of joy. If needed, this is Venerable Analio, this German monk is writing in his book on mindfulness of breathing, if needed at times, a brief recollection of our wholesome moral conduct can be used as an aid to encourage joy. So this is what I meant. Um, <clears throat> there are ways to bring your confidence in that this heart, mine, can be joyful. Like the, what Venable Analios mentioning here is just like, I've been a good person or I've done my best to be a good person. And I haven't cheated others, haven't manipulated, taken turns, been kind. So we recall our efforts to live in harmony with others, and that can be a cause for joy. Or we can bring to mind our appreciation that we're able to follow in the footsteps of the Buddha. We can bring that to mind, like, how great, that can be a cause for joy. Or we can bring it to mind our wholesome intention to live for the benefit of others, to cultivate our practice for our own well being, but also for the well being of others. So there are re- recollections we can bring to mind, like when we move into this fifth step, we can, like there's some things we can bring to mind that just bring joy to the heart. And it's basically different varieties of, I'm a good person. I want to be a good person, I'm resolved to be a good person. And just those thoughts alone, you'll feel that upwelling, that movement in the heart that is light and trustworthy. Because it's the opposite of being a frightened beast who feels like they've got to dominate the moment in order to be safe. It's a different move, that kind of trusting, the goodness of my life. But you have to experiment with it because if this is a creative endeavor, there's no exact right way to do this except ways to do this that actually bring about that recognition of the lightness and joy in the heart so that you're better able to keep it in mind through the duration of breathing in to stay interested and keep joy in mind through the duration of breathing out. And we just keep doing that. And then that naturally matures, as I talked about at the beginning of the talk, to this more more almost visceral release, like the heart energetically, the heart meaning the sense of me, is energetically realizing it doesn't need its weight, Does it need its defenses? Does it need to be afraid and tight? And it's that relaxation, like not needing to be defended, that is that that contentedness. And then we're keeping that in mind. That's the sixth instruction that I mentioned right at the beginning. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity.